0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Great way to start a show. That's probably one of my favorite songs along with so many others, but that song just has such a great, ominous, haunting feeling to it. Welcome to a special edition of the Indie Cafe on the Red Velvet Media Network. And today we have a special guest with us who has just um, come out with a new book on Brian Jones, The Making of the Rolling Stones. And uh, we have Paul calling in all the way from London so I am going to bring Paul on as well as my co-host Spencer Drake is calling in from New York. And um, this book is really amazing and Paul has um, done such a great job with this book. And uh, Paul is a man that has done many, many things and we will soon find out so much more about that because I'm going to bring him into the studio and uh, let me bring Paul in. And I wanted to let everyone know also that this show will be available afterwards on iTunes if you're tuning in and you want to listen to it later, and also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio under the Indie Cafe. Um, the chat room is also open, and if you'd like to call in, the number is 347-677-1036. And with that, I want to welcome Spencer, and I want to welcome Paul to the show. Paul, I want to say your last name correctly. Could you please pronounce it for me? Because I know how it should be, and I've heard you t- say it, but well, I don't want to mess up. Hi, yet. Holly.
2: It's good to speak <laughs> to you. Uh, it's Trinka, good old Polish. That's what name, I thought. So, uh. Okay.
1: <laughs> it's awesome. It's great. So, <laughs>
2: And it's great to you be know. here, and that track did sound It's great to be here, and that track did sound great, didn't it? So innovative, and when I was just here on the phone, you kind of really hear how it speeds up. They're really playing in the studio, and they're really kind of experimenting at the edge of what they can kind of hold together. It's a a fantastic track. It reminds you when things were really on the edge, people didn't know how to make that stuff. They were doing it all for the first time. You can hear it today. Mm -hmm. It sounds really exciting.
1: You know, that's the original version, too, from 1966 when they played it live. I found it, and um, that is the one where he's playing the sitar, sitting down. Brian's sitting down, playing the sitar to it. And I was reading a little bit of the background on that song where he got his influence when he was in Morocco and stuff um, on that song. But why don't we um, talk a little bit more about the book and Brian and and about you and spencer and i both have a lot of questions but want to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about this new book on brian jones and why you decided to do this and how amazing this book is i mean both spencer and i read it and we were both like oh wow you know yeah we like yeah, really yeah. amazing well well thank you guys yeah. I, I mean I, I i guess this was the
2: um the third in the in the string of books i um Wrote a biography of Iggy Pop, then of David Bowie, and um,
1: yeah,
2: I've always been a Stones <laughs> fan, and I've interviewed Keith Richards and the band quite a few times over the last, you know, twenty years now. But I'd always um, been mm-hmm. interested in Brian Jones, and I saw him as really one of the last untold stories. In my mind, there were no books on him of the kind that I wanted to read. There's, you know, a few books that talk about you know, murder conspiracies around his death. But I know being mm-hmm. a Brit that um, Brian was one of the key people, maybe the key person to turn Britain onto blues music and then Absolutely. the world, you know, then America. Mm-hmm. He yeah, He's the yeah. guy who introduced Howling yeah. Wolf to America, and I think he really Man. changed the sound of, of rock and roll. So I found him a very important person. And um,
3: mm-hmm.
2: compared to, say, David Bowie, who was very together, and kind of successful, Brian was... Maybe not together. Maybe, you know, Was he successful? Good question. You know, But he's a kind of very flawed individual, and that made him a very interesting person to spend a couple of years of your life finding out about. You know?
4: I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the thing, uh, Holly, I want to ask him a question. Um, The, the thing about what I find interesting uh, is that he did have this, uh, and you know the, the blues and jazz actually influence. And what's really amazing is even today, the Stones are still influenced by that heavy blues thing, which he really introduced. Is that right, Andrew? Uh, Paul?
2: Well, he he absolutely introduced them to it. And I mean, Mick and Keith had heard blues. You know, they, they'd listened to Chuck Berry. They knew about Jimmy Reed. But it was yeah. really Brian who took them deep into it, who introduced them to Robert Johnson, for instance. Right. And Brian was a yeah. guy who was into open tunings. He was the f- the first electric guitarist in Europe, you know, the first yeah. electric slide guitarist in Europe, the first white guy to master all this. Nobody else had done it in the UK. Certainly nobody, you know, apart from Western swing players in the 1930s, nobody in America. And he just, he was the first guy to work out those secrets. So of all the British blues boom, and there were many great players, but Brian was the first one to work out how you played harmonica. He sussed out this thing called cross harp. He worked out what all those open tunings were, you know, he, and We hear a lot about Keith's open G tuning. Brian had got that figured by 1962, 1963. And, Mm. you know, now we all know that stuff. It's all on YouTube. It's kind of easy to follow, isn't it? But when you were a kid and you were just hearing this odd 78 record here or there, here and there, or, or going to kind of local record stores in Gloucestershire, where he grew up, to work out, you know, that stuff is very hidden esoteric important knowledge and he was the first one
1: the first mm-hmm.
2: one to work it out you know other people did oh. later on people like jimmy page came later on and jimmy page was a big fan of brian but he was the first and so what would have happened if he hadn't been there you know maybe it would have happened but it would have taken a lot longer and maybe it wouldn't have been as good
4: i mean the mm-hmm. thing about and wolf which i was brought up on uh, and really freaked out about him was the electric guitar thing, the electric blues. And so I could see where that related, right?
2: Well, I was oh, yeah. a fan of uh, um, Howling Wolf, and I did a I did a, a book on blues in the 90s mm-hmm. where I tracked down all the people who played with Wolf. But what they told me even then is that, you know, in 1964, 1965, Wolf was kind of doing all right. You know, he was playing in Chicago and then suddenly the Stones got him on Shindig and Buddy Guy was playing with Wolf at the time then and you know Buddy Guy said to me when the Stones and Brian got Hound and Wolf on Shindig in May sixty five, I think it was, that helped them cross a bridge mm-hmm. they thought never would be crossed. Wow. because, you know, civil rights had only had only really been voted in the previous year. You know, and that these people huge, were just yeah. completely ignored in their own homeland. It took British kids to expose America to this amazing music that was being recorded in yeah, in the heart of the country. So for that alone, you know, what Brian did was incredibly mm. important because he heard that stuff and he knew... For Brian, blues wasn't just this esoteric, weirdo, um, hip hipster stuff. It was mainstream. You know, he... he I mean, Brian wanted to be famous, and he thought that playing this blues music to the kids would make him famous and loved and adored, and he did, you know, and and he had this mission, and he did accomplish this mission,
1: although it kind of cost him a lot along the way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what I wanted to say um, was I definitely agree with you, Spencer. Um, there's the blues and that whole feeling still with the Rolling Stones, and I really feel like a lot of it has been channeled through right. Brian with You're with right. them still as they're playing. And um, I totally agree. And, you know, this book you wrote, it really is a very heavy book about Brian, Um do you want to talk a little bit about Brian as a person and, and a little bit about his history and how he came, you know, into everything?
2: Well, you're I right. I guess it that. is a heavy story.
1: It Brian is. was,
2: um, he he grew up in, in the west of um, of Britain in, um, in a place called Cheltenham, which was kind of, it was a spa town. So it was built in what we'd mm-hmm. say, the kind of Regency period, where all the wealthy people would go in the early eighteen hundreds mm-hmm. to kind of take the waters. But it also had lo- uh, there was also lots of horse racing there. There was also lots of prostitution there. So it's an interesting town. And Brian came from a reasonably kind of posh background. His dad was an aeronautical engineer. He worked for the company that designed the best propellers for Spitfires. So seriously, and in, in the Battle of Britain, um, the British. Could have been falling behind till they had better propellers on their planes. And Brian Jones' dad was was the company that made it happen. So it's this weird engineering background. And the same town has GCHQ, which is like our version of the CIA. So this weird little kind of secret town where Brian grew up. And he was a smart kid, but he had asthma. And he'd gone to a grammar school, which is a school for high-achieving kids. But because he had asthma, he'd been a kind of, you know, what you'd say is a jock. And then suddenly because he had asthma, it wasn't really happening. He fell out of that scene. So he just became a really rock and roll rebel early on when he was 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. I found all of his school records. And he played a bit of clarinet. And um, in the UK, we had the trad jazz scene early on where lots of people are obsessed with all the, you know, the jazz out of new Orleans and, and and that's what a lot of kids were into in the, in the forties. And Brian started out listening to that and then soon moved on into modern jazz and then blues. And he really picked up on electric blues. There was a, a kind of a bit of a coffee club blues scene, a bit like you'd have in the village in New York um, Brian was one of the first people to get into electric blues, uh, you know, really mm-hmm. early on, well before anybody in America, two or three years oh. before. So he'd he had the sound uh, down. He, he listened to Elmore James and the electric slide guitarist. So he had a acoustic with a pickup on, and he and he got that super distorted Elmore James sound, even when he was playing in Cheltenham. And so he famously moved to London in '62. Um, influenced by a fellow called Alexis Corner, who's a massive influence on the uh, British blues scene. But Brian had done hundreds of gigs. You know, he, uh, I mean, I I kind of documented at least a 100 before he came to London. And at the time, mm-hmm. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were just literally playing in their parents' living room. They'd never played in public, but Brian was out there doing this stuff, and it just hit the road. You know, he was kind of messed up, didn't get on with his parents, and we haven't talked yet about all the children he fathered, you know, which happened really early on with kind of young Mm -hmm. girls. But this was, you know, the 60s, people didn't really know about contraception, but all of the kind of rock and roll lifestyle was just around the corner. He prototyped it all. So he he came to London really early on. Um, He was there in search of the music, but he was also running away from... um, From angry dads, you know, I found two separate, two separate parts of the community in in Cheltenham wanted to get rid of him from the city because to get him away from their Uh daughters. So it's a messy story, you know. He was um, a bit of a genius, and he really, really dedicated himself to the music. But in terms of being somebody who'd look out for you, who you could trust. You know, he wasn't that kind of guy at all. You know, he was,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: we know about rock and rollers. We know about rock stars. They're not necessarily people you can rely on, and he wasn't, you know. So um, all all the way through his life, there was this duality where he dedicated himself to the music, but um, his personal life and was fashion. a bit of a, and it
1: fashion. went from
2: one uh, disaster to the next.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yep. How did,
4: How did he formulate the group? How uh, did he
2: formulate the group, Paul? Mm-hmm. He put an he put an ad in. Uh, I think it's Jazz News magazine. So he um, he was playing around this scene in Ealing, um, around Alexis Corner. He'd probably bumped into Ian Stewart already, and then advertised and got mm-hmm. a string of people in. Um, and Mick and Keith saw him play Ealing. They came out from Dartford. Mick borrowed his dad's car. And he was this fellow who had blonde hair. He was introduced. He was playing with Paul Jones, later of Manfred Mann, who he'd bumped oh, wow. into in Oxford, mm-hmm. and um, and they played a couple of numbers. And you know, for the other Stones, this guy was incredibly sophisticated. And I think it was a, within a few days of that he'd actually advertised for a ba- for a band. So they had lots of different auditions, and um, it said. And it's quite likely true that, you know, he wanted Mick as a singer and Mick insisted that he bring Keith in. And um, it's a bit like the Beatles. You know, when John Lennon said he would met Paul McCartney and he thought, well, you know, if I get Paul in, I'm not really going to be the boss of the band anymore, but the band will be better. I think Brian
5: Mm -hmm. made
2: that kind of equation. You know, he he had to get Mick in um, and. You know, people maybe warned him against getting Keith in as well because he'd be outnumbered, but he went for it because it would make a better band. And it, it didn't make a better band. You know, they were a great team. Ian Stewart was a terrific piano player. It took them quite a lot of time to get a rhythm section together. Charlie Watts didn't arrive until the beginning of the next year. But they, they mm-hmm. moved really quickly. And the sound they made early on was just so far ahead of anybody else. You know, they were they really had that kind of super compressed distorted chicago blues sound down you know and oh absolutely it you know they weren't pu- mm-hmm. they weren't purists. it it's kids music you know i, I love their first album it kind of reminds me of i don't know the ramones or patty yeah. smith it's just very teenage music it's not kind of mm-hmm. rivalist at all there's nothing purist about it it's just great right. snotty rock and roll music and you know I, we just heard Paint It Black, and that was great. And the, but the first album that's got stuff like Route 66 on or or the single of I Want to Be Your Man, they're just great records, and they're snotty kind of teenage anthems. They're wonderful.
4: I saw, uh, when I was a uh-huh. kid, when I was a kid, I saw them on the Clay Cole show on Channel 13 on television, and I remember I remember vividly what they looked like. Mick Jagger had a, a sweatshirt on, Right. Paul and, and the rest of the group was very laid back and dress, you know what I mean? With dungarees, but they were like they didn't have a style, they were kinda of like raw, you know what I mean, but they're mm. really cool. But I remember seeing them on television when they did the uh when they were on T V. It was very early. It must have been like the
1: Brian the first. Brian was such a fashionista. I mean, it was like yeah, Brian created such right. a look. It was insane, <laughs> like he was so posh, you know, with his clothing and stuff. Um uh, you know what I wanted to say, well, Paul, was. Real quick mean, before Mick, we. Uh huh. Go ahead. Go ahead. I wanted to I mean, say where we know, could Mick, get the book. Mick
2: looked good, and then Brian was a, the really the kind of um, mm-hmm. the kind of icon of the West Coast. So you know, mm-hmm. all the people in the West Coast when he went out, they would kind of copy him. So that the hairstyle he had, he was massively yep. vain. <laughs> you know, he would wash his hair all the time. But you know, you look at the birds; they just based their look on. On Brian Jones totally. Oh, absolutely. And In fact, all the early garage yeah. punk bands—they would all look like. I mean, even Ron Ashton from The Stooges told me how. You know, he tried to. He had a Brian Jones haircut really early on. Everybody had a Brian Jones haircut. He was just <laughs> impossibly cool. And the whole—you know—you can look to all the all the different versions of the style he has, and different people picked up on on different elements of it. He was very, very iconic. And then, of course. Later mm-hmm. on, he teams up with Anita Pallenberg. He's the first guy to dress in an androgynous way with kind of right. scarves and caftans and whatever. He was, he was way ahead of them. And, you know, there were, there were areas where, um, you know, Mick was ahead of Brian as, as an icon, but it was always said that, um, you know, the boys like Mick and then the girls like Brian. What, what uh, is the story uh, of I uh, Want to uh,
4: Be Your Man? That was the first single. That's funny.
2: Well, they'd actually had um, a kind of minor hit with Come On. Uh, they'd just teamed mm-hmm. up with Andrew Oldham, and they, you know, they had a bunch of songs. They'd, they'd already recorded some good stuff in the studio, and then they needed a follow-up to Come On. That done all right, I think that was September '63, and they needed a follow-up, and they'd, they'd they bumped into John Lennon and Paul McCartney, and um, you know, Andrew Oldham says he bumped into them. And then the Stones themselves say they bumped into them. But they, um, but they donated the song to them before Ringo had, you know, sung it. And um, but Andrew Olden was ill. This was only their second single. And Andrew Olden was a great manager, but he did practice divide and rule. He he wanted to set up Mick and Keith as a songwriting partnership cause right. he wanted a, a a partnership to rival Lennon and McCartney. He, he didn't get on so much with Brian because Brian had managed... The band before but when they recorded this uh, this single Andrew Olden was mm-hmm. in the hospital or or had disappeared he's he a bit manic depressive so he's in a kind of um, depressed state disappeared so they recorded the that particular track without him and it's so super high powered you listen to the Brian James's guitar it's really distorted oh. it's one of the most kind of early punk things You'll hear in the '60s, and it's yeah, me. You know, you I, really I was reading an
4: article. Paul, Paul, I was reading an article that says Jones plays a blistering and one of the best slide guitar solos on the song.
3: hmm
2: Absolutely. Yeah, he played, so yeah. yeah, and and the needles are in the red. You know, the, there's no other Stone stuff that just sounds as tough as that before. And if you listen to all the things like Nuggets box sets of all those early. You know, sort of U.S. garage rock bands out in the Midwest and out in Detroit. This is the sound that they're trying to match. You know, it's super fast, and it's Brian who oversaw everything in the studio. You know, he brought the sheet music in, he arranged it all, he gave himself the the solo. It's just a great track, and you know, I think this one is definitely better than the Beatles original. I've got a soft spot for Ringo, but you know, Ringo's song is kind of like showbiz. And, but this, mm-hmm. the, the Stones version, is like tough. It's like life itself, really.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to say real quick about the book, Paul, um, where people can get the book. And I also wanted to compliment you on the cover of photography. I know there's a lot of really amazing images in the middle of the book as well. And I wanted to talk a little bit about those. Yeah. Um, where, is the, where can people get the book now? Um, it is available online. I know yeah, that you
2: should be able to get it any 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 bookstore. I think pretty it's much
1: anywhere. Penguin yeah. are the
2: publishers in the states, mm-hmm. so it's actually Random House publish it in the UK, but out in the states it's, mm-hmm. it, it's published or distributed by um, by Penguin. So you should be able to get it in any any major bookstore. Um, I'm hesitant to tell people to get to Amazon. You know, go to your local bookstore first. But if you know if you don't have a local bookstore, then it's available via Amazon as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, Bar- pictures, all of them. Barnes and Noble's still going, isn't it? You know, so mm-hmm. you know, try them. But, you know, they definitely stock it.
1: Yeah. No. And these pictures in the middle of the book, um, if you know, are just amazing. Um yeah. How did you get these pictures? There's so there's so many here that are just so, you know, um, very iconic photos because they're like you have to see them. Well,
2: I, I I'm lucky because I work for, um, I used to edit a magazine called Mojo, which is still oh, wow. the UK, or Europe's best-selling yeah. music mag. And so over the years, I'd get to know all the photographers. So people like Gerard Mankiewicz, um, who's the Stones, one of the Stones' key photographers. You know, I, I knew him over a lot of years. In fact, I put him back in contact with the Stones when he hadn't seen them for 20 years. And there's another fellow called Nicky Wright who shot the first album. And I just, got to know him at Mojo Magazine. So bit by idea, I'd kind of get to learn where all of these places were. But then also when I was working on the book itself, like I've got early photos I've never seen before as a, you know, as a teenager when he wears glasses. He's really mm. geeky, you know, he was a kind oh, of yeah. science student. And that was just through finding people who'd gone to school with him. So I went out to his hometown at least three times. I mean, I went back again and again and again and in the end just found dozens of people who went to school with him. You know, I spent a lot of time because I like, you know, I like tracking people down. That's part of the magic and uh, so they would have the photos bit by bit as well and then, you know, hey, you know, just over the years you build up contacts. The U.S., cover is a lovely photo by a fellow called john hoppy hopkins who launched oh, yeah, a big awesome. hippie man called it and you know i went out to, he's you know he's no longer with us he died uh, a few years back but i went out to see him and uh, went to all of his photos so he had a lot of lovely photos He was a very good photographer and um yeah it's just kind of it's 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 where they're you know, great pictures. It's just going out I mean, to see people, driving out to see people, getting the train out to see people. Yeah, that's the fun thing of doing it. book. I don't stay home on the phone. I I go and no. go and track uh, people down, uh-huh. and on the way you you know you'll find all the photos and um, and everything else. So yeah, it was, uh, and you know, and in the end, it's just the rock and roll world is a fairly small one, you know. So. And, and I guess I spent 20 years writing about it for, for a place like Moja. So I tend to know where a lot of the, uh, the bodies are buried.
4: But one thing you brought oh, up, Paul, in, in the book it, uh, that you just brought up yourself mm-hmm. was that Jared Mankowitz became – when all of them came in with the stones, he changed the photography, right? He brought Jared Mankowitz in. And one of my favorite shoots is Between the Buttons, that photo shoot. That's incredible, you know?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean d- – Dered uh, is a bit of a genius um, I've always Liked his Photography big time We hired him on Mojo to, to do shots for us And in fact um, We did a special set of Mojo editions Where there's a great writer called Sylvie Simmons and I went out To interview the band in Toronto And this is the time when I ever Saw the mag and we had the Between, we had the, between the buttons shoot And mm-hmm. we Kind of sliced it up and had four different covers of the magazine, so you wow. could choose your favorite stone. And, <laughs> um, you know, we did that with Gerard. It was great. But I've got to tell you about a time. Um, really early on when I knew Gerard, um, he gave me a lovely photo of Keith Richards when he, um, when he was in America, and uh, somebody kind of gave him a load of cowboy gear, and, uh, and they went out riding. And there's a lovely Gerard Mankiewicz photo of Keith, one of the nicest early portraits. So I think the first time I interviewed Keith, which was a long time ago, early, you know, early 90s, I I'd interviewed him a few times on the phone. Then I flew over to interview him in uh, in New York. And I, I took the Gerard, that Gerard print so he could sign it for me. So I turned up. And I show Keith the print. he goes, ah,
1: oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, the wife and kids will love that. Thanks, man. He takes it off me. Oh, you're funny. <laughs> you know, you know so, really yeah, so cool? He, and actually, when I went back, back 20
4: years ago, he actually had that photo on oh, the wall somewhere. But, uh, you know, so because he thinks I'm
2: fantastically uh, generous by giving him this very, very rare photo. But didn't realize I didn't really want to give it to him in the first place. So, yeah, oh, that's, that's funny. Life. That's funny.
1: Oh, that's funny. You know, in the book, the picture the piper loves Pan. That's a great photo. Yeah, that's photo. great. That's, that's great. Just, Holly. Um, such a great picture. That just shows yeah. Brian, I think, in his innocence. If there could be any innocence <laughs> <laughs> with Brian. Right. Um, I mean, it, it's just like it's just like so beautiful. It's it's a great picture where he's got. It looks like a clarinet, correct? It, uh, I think
2: it's the soprano sax, actually, and um, okay, if you've got the early version, we thought that at first, because uh, it looks kind of weird, like a desert or something, and uh, it's always been said that photo was in Morocco, it
4: was, it, well, the photo's picked by Linda key. Probably but then was. we worked
2: out, actually, no, it's not, it's in the English countryside, and it's snow. It's in the beach, yeah. Ah. Uh, it, it, yeah. You know, it that. was a really, really cold winter that year. I think of uh, '68. And mm-hmm. uh, but he is the Piper, you know, and he he saw himself as the god Pan, who would kind of lead people into this madness with his with panpipes or whatever, you know. And so all through him, there's this kind of little childish quality to him, and then also this very old. Mm-hmm you know, kind of uh, resonance there. And I know speaking to people like Donovan, who since married one of Brian's key girlfriends, Linda Lawrence, you know, the the mother mm-hmm. of, of Julian, his child, you know, Donovan thinks, and I tend to believe that Brian actually saw himself as a manifestation of the God Pan, you know, so um oh, wow. Pan was the spirit oh. of rock and roll. And, um, but there's something a bit, you know, there's something a bit mad about him. That in, in mythology, there's, there's um, a time when I think of somebody has to judge between the music of Pan and the music of Apollo. And they go for Pan because that's rock and roll. You know, it's distorted, it's yeah. syncopated. and there's a But there's also a little bit of madness there, and it's a bit dangerous. And I know from his friend Stash that Brian's kind of identified himself with the god Pan. And it's, yeah, I admit it's very esoteric. But I, I think there is an element into which you did tap into something. And, uh, you know, if you think about all of the rock and roll scene, even with the Beatles before the Stones came along, it was all very major key and nice. And Brian really brought this edge to it. And, um, yeah, I I reckon it's the God pan in there. <laughs> that's, that's why you can hear
4: this. Oh, edge. absolutely. My theory I today. To, uh, <laughs> Paul, I want to ask you something. You have a quote in there that really blew my mind. Towards the end of the book, well, probably, Brian's probably going off his head. He mentioned to somebody about a supergroup with John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix, and him. Yeah, that's always rumored.
1: That's always rumored, but
4: it, it, um,
2: but really, it wasn't going to happen, you know. Yeah, um, sure. So, so I think that's something that's more of rumor than a fact. John liked Brian a lot. You know, um, Jimi Hendrix liked Brian a lot. Ah. But by the time, you know, th- that was talked about, Brian was was a mess. So there's a, a really right, sad man. quote from Lennon, you know, where I think he sent in in 68, 69, Brian would call him up and he, he dreaded taking his calls because he was in such psychic pain, you know, and the thing is, Brian was a visionary, but he happened to be in a band, you know, with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and they, they took what he'd created, yeah. and they were more reliable than him. You know, uh, they, they would turn up. He wouldn't turn up, and a, and a lot of show business is turning up. And after a while, you know, things went pear shape and Brian was just in a lot of psychic pain. And we could talk about who takes the blame for it all, but... They weren't nice to him. They were nasty to him. You know, they they abused him. Right. Really, it was a, the wow. whole thing was very very brutal. And we've got to remember these are young guys. You know, they're, right.
5: Like, right. they're young
2: bucks like a wolf pack, and it's very brutal. And, and and one thing that was often said to me by different people is if you go and and talk to people about the the scene around the Beatles, they had nice people around the Beatles, and and mm-hmm. you know we know that. Then and Carney had a big falling out, but actually they'd got on well for a long time. And the Stones weren't like that. You know, the Stones were at each other's throat all the time. There was a lot of violence. When you go around to see Mick and Keith now, it's very, very dysfunctional. There's a kind of um, really enmity between them. You know, if you're friends with Keith, you can't really be friends with Mick, and
3: mm. it's
2: very dysfunctional.
3: You know, mm-hmm. maybe you hear
2: that. Maybe that's a good thing because you hear it in the music. You know, that it gives the music this edge. But you no, know, they were kind of um, a dysfunctional, nasty bunch, and that really mm-hmm. broke Brian. You know, he was
1: people like
2: Marianne Faithful, who's sensitive. Mm-hmm. You know, she yeah. said how hanging out with the Stones nearly killed her, and it and it and it. Mm-hmm. You know, effectively killed Brian. He was he was a broken man. but In another sense, he'd made that decision. I think. You know, people talk about would he have done it if he'd known what Mick and Keith were going to do to him? Would he have done it if he'd known what would happen with Anita Pallenberg? My thought is, you know what, he'd have done it all the same, just because he Mm -hmm. wanted to take that risk. He, you know, he took the risks. He wanted to be. On the edge, and he suffered. And you know, maybe he died for exactly that reason. But I, yeah, you know, he had a kind of life mission—mission mission to fulfill—and I think he did do it. And if he had the chance, I bet he would have done it all over again in much the same way.
4: Well, isn't it mm-hmm. true that Oldham, when Oldham came in, he separated him right from the group, so that must have started that whole isolate. Is that right? Am I right about that? Paul? Yeah, started but- the isolation thing or some part of it. <laughs>
2: Uh, big time, it was divide and rule. And, you know, Oldham himself was a a great manager, but he was a kid, he didn't really know what he was doing. And, um, he fancied Mick. You know, Mick was the guy, you know, Oldham swung both ways, he was a bit obsessed with, with Mick Jagger, he wanted to get in with Mick, and so, Brian was the, was the kind of key, you know, the key figure in the band who controlled everything. So, for Andrew to to kind of get control, he had to sideline Brian, and he did. You know, there's there's amazing stuff where Brian left the band and went to stay with Scott Ross, a DJ in in New York, because he mm. just had enough of Andrew oh. having a go at him, and uh, and he did. It was divide and rule. If um, Andrew couldn't control the band unless he managed to sort of split them up into different silos and that's exactly what happened and even and he now he travels separately Brian. from
4: the band a lot right paul he travels separately from the band is that right
2: well you know <laughs> there'd be times in fact sometimes he did he had a nice car so he he liked traveling on his own And that it just broke wrong for him you know they all lived together um in edith grove in chelsea and then,-, mm-hmm. he just liked a bit of luxury, you know he was they were all slobs, really, and then uh, <laughs> uh, but when the but but then when they left Edith Grove, he went to stay with Linda Lawrence, um, this wonderful woman with sort of long, dark hair. And her parents had, I think, a kind of guest house. So if he stayed with them, he'd be in the lap of luxury. So that's what he did. You know, that was I'm sure that was his motivation, just to have people look after him, make his <laughs> breakfast. And, oh, yeah. But it meant he wasn't in the middle of it all fighting with them. You know, he'd, he'd sort of separated himself from the gang. So Mick and Keith were there with Andrew Oldham. And, you know, that's the way these things work. Anyone who's been in a band, you know, you kind of get sick of each other. You want to murder each other every now and then. You know, I'm sure we've all all been there. And you've got to stay in and and, and tough it out. But I think he wasn't as tough as the others. And that's maybe why he just, um, you know, absented himself from the... And the madness. So, if you talk about the psychology of it all, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, it's like it, it, it's like looking at the court of the you know French royalty in the 17th century when there are all these different retinues going around. Or Game of Thrones. You know, this is Game of Thrones, but in rock and roll terms.
1: Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Well, you know what I read in the book when um, Anita and he, you know, parted, that. Um, he wasn't really upset about that. He was more upset about the band and how they didn't support him and how awful they treated him. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, people like to think
2: that he was a broken man when Anita dumped him. Mm -hmm. And, And my feeling is he was, he was sad about Anita, but you know, Anita had always been a kind of a big risk. It was like a double or quits bet, you know, so they were, they would fight all the time. They had a weird relationship. I'm sure when she left him, that was hard, but I think it has been betrayed by these guys who were his brothers. That Absolutely. was way harder.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know and they uh, left
2: him in the most brutal way imaginable. I mean, they'll talk about it now. You know I think Mick and Keith are in some kind of terrible psychic denial because they'll make up excuses for him. Brian was a pain in the backside, you know, and he was could be violent, he could be mean. But they weren't much different. They weren't much better. And they abandoned him in Morocco with no money, no nothing. They just disappeared and left him. And that's got to be one of the cruelest, nastiest, most kind of calculated ways of destroying somebody that we know in any band at all. And, um, you know, Keith Richards is somebody I, I kind of care about him a lot. But I... You can't talk to him about it. I I think he's just in denial. It'll it'll kind of... Mm -hmm. What happened was very dark and it kind of... It broke Brian. But he still had a lot to give. He still did great music after that and he he
3: Mm -hmm. still had
2: a certain kind of dignity and glamour about him. But, you know, they were all frying pretty close to the sun, you know, so it was risky for all of them, and we know, you know, he nearly killed, um, Mick, uh, sorry, Keith, but, you know, Brian was really the first one to go down in, 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 in kind of rock and roll, and, you know, it's a sad story, and it wasn't just, by any, it wasn't by any means, Mick and Keith, you know, he was just pursued by the media, by the press, yeah. by corrupt cops, so, Yeah, people often talk about, you know, murder conspiracies around his death, which I don't ultimately believe. I mean, I have an open mind, but I don't think there's any real proof that happened. But, you know, it's certainly scandalous how the police and the establishment and the media and the newspapers really went for him. So they just attempted so many busts on him. The fellow was a bit paranoid in the first place, and then once all of the British establishment is trying to get you and trying to break you, you know, that's certainly going to think your paranoia is justified. And they did break him. You know, he. what's really horrible is people talk about his death and then they say he was kind of a a drug addict or, or you know, it's because he was on heroin. You know, he never took heroin. He was big on, you know, he would spoke dope. He would dropped way too much LSD. But because... The establishment were after him all the time. He he stopped really um, taking dope or or acid, and he would just take downers like legal um,
3: mm-hmm. legal
2: downers, quaaludes. Um, I guess you'd call them in yeah. in the states, and they ruined mm-hmm. his coordination. He took them because they were legal,
3: right? Mm-hmm. And that's
2: what kind of messed with it. You know, that's what kind of really crippled his musicianship and.
3: and and Mm -hmm. made him
2: fall apart, you know, so it's full of, you know, there's so many what-ifs in that story, and, uh, you know, and I I do feel for him, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, although he was the author of his own misfortune as well as you know, even though he was kinda of assailed on all sides by the establishment but um but, you know actually we haven't talked about the music have we in, in bring to bring up about something
4: about the, the music. album
1: absolutely their,
4: their Satanic Majesty's Request. That's an album that's like, incredible on Brian Jones area, right? Because that was a super creative instrumental type album. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean he was into he was really the experimental one of the Stones. I mean, and you can hear that now, because the Stones, however much we love them, have kind of record of... Um,
1: they sound so different. They've been making
2: the same yeah. music for the last sort of 30 mm-hmm. years. But you go to the Brian Jones here, and, and like every album, there's a different. whole new sonic palette in, in there. So, you know, he's using electronic instruments, he, you know, He's yeah. using, you know, essentially what is um, an early form of sampling. And he can just, he can master them. And then at the same time, he can play beautifully sensitive slide guitar, but they were really moving fast. And he was,
4: mm.
2: he was pushing it. And yeah, and Satanic yeah. Majesty's, which was a mess. He's the fella who, um, really,
4: just you know, who it really something. made it
2: happen. Yeah. And um and then, you know, later on, he's bringing in all this Moroccan music, and that's something yep. that I would have loved yep. to have heard more of, you know, because he went right. out Me to
1: too,
2: Chichuka, too. Uh, an amazing place in the mountains, where I went. I went out to Marrakesh, where Anita and the Stones kind of abandoned him, and um, and then I went out to the mountains of Jujuka where he was chasing this kind of mythical fat character called Bourgelude who was mm-hmm. kind of based on a kind of Roman ceremony. And, uh, you know, he was pushing the envelope right to the end, sonically. And, uh, you know, although the Stones made a couple of great albums after he left, you know, like uh, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street. But I think they were running on a kind of residual mojo. He'd he'd given them that kind of dark magic. And all they've done then is kind of re- you know, they haven't really brought in anything innovative since then. He was the one searching out new stuff, and people would always talk about him as being the reach-out stone. He was the guy who found Andy Warhol. He's the guy who linked yeah. up with Nico, you know, and introduced yeah. used to have the Velvet Underground. Well, hey, you know, because he wanted to shagger, and uh, whatever, but, you know, he, he was a reach-out one. They, were, they would stay in their comfort zones. Brian would go out, and he'd go out all night and find these people, and bring them back, and the, and the same thing really happened with the music as well. He was... We reach out stay, the you, one you know what it reminds me of? of Le- it
4: crosses over into like Led Zeppelin a little bit because Led Zeppelin wanted to experiment with harpsichords and all this other stuff, and it remi- reminds me of Brian Jones where you bring these instruments in, what you're talking about, right? And they have they didn't do that after that, right? They they were very you know different, but that's well, the yeah. thing what you're talking about the creativity yeah. of interpretation.
1: Zeppelin, Zeppelin did a whole thing in Morocco. So, I mean, there was a whole thing with, with uh, right. Robert Plant and Morocco, and I remember that. But, you know, um, Paul, I know that we wanted to know more about the songs you chose today. I know Paint It Black was one of them. Ruby Tuesday um, is the song that we're closing with today. You want to talk a little bit about uh, Ruby Tuesday?
2: Ruby Tuesday is a lovely song, It's a, but it's a very sad song as well. Um I spoke to Marianne Faithful quite a lot about this song because um, she lived at, um, you know, she kind of spent a lot of time at the the flat where Anita and Brian lived together. And Brian felt he was kind of on the outside, so he wanted to do something amazing. And for a long time he'd been messing around with, a recorder melody, and um, he actually explained to Anita, uh, sorry, to Marianne, how he'd come up with this melody that was uh, a cross between John Dowland, who's this amazing Renaissance composer, who's English, I guess, from the 16th century. And then Skip James, who's an amazing blues man from Bentonia, Mississippi. So he he came up with a tune that he thought was a cross between the two of them. And that was very bright. Mm -hmm. He was this old-school English guy, and then he was really into deep, hardcore blues. And that melody on, on the record became Ruby Tuesday. And according to Marianne, you know, he played it for Keith, thinking, this is it, it'll get if I really help and make this amazing song, it would get me back to oh. the centre of the band. And then Marianne uh. said that Keith heard it and went, yeah, great, thanks, mate, and then took it. They recorded oh, it with wow. Brian's recorder. Brian played piano on a lot of early versions. I don't think he's on the final um, version of the song, but, you know, the piano arrangement, according to Marianne, is his. And, uh wow. And, you know, he came up with it all and they just said thank you, and it was just another Jagger Richards song. And their account wow. said, actually, mm-hmm. in the book, it actually says, you know, how he shouted at Brian, you've got to stop giving this material yep. away. It just go, goes as Jagger Richards songs. You're like, you're giving away huge amounts of money. And
4: right. and mm-hmm. we
2: would say he definitely had an influence on you. Yeah, that's. They've never really recorded anything like that since. I mean, I guess the nearest thing is Angie. It's a lovely song. But that Mm -hmm. sensitivity is really Brian Jones. And um, it's it's a very, very beautiful song. But, you know, I think if you knew about Brian and and you listened to it, it's just all about all that kind of lost potential and sadness of Mm. just wanting everything to be okay and not being okay. And yeah. that's really the story of, of Brian, you know, the man who just wanted to be at the center of things, but just ended up being on the edge. But nonetheless, right. he, yeah, couldn't he couldn't hold very, on to
1: it. He couldn't hold on to it. Very, very sensitive
2: yeah. and, and beautiful mm-hmm. music. And, and Ruby Tuesday, you know, he definitely epitomizes that for me. Now, well, I want to ask
4: you about one thing. I, I just, I'll go away, we'll get back to that. But he, the last song he plays on is You Got the Silver, I'm reading. Uh, by the stones. Yes, he's, I
2: mean, and that's, that's lovely. I mean, the thing is at the end, he was being marginalized. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I love that song. Um I guess my favorite from that later period is really um, no expectations. Wait, just oh, yeah. uh-huh. playing slide guitar. And listen yep. to that. And on the uh, Rockwell Circus recording, he's playing in open a, and then think about Keith Richardson, how he discovered open G-tuning. He always says wow. he uh, learned it from Rykuda. Well, no expectations is that same tuning. It's actually open g wow. the same one. Yeah. And think about how it must be if you were playing Jones today and you're hearing Keith who said for 40 years how he took where he got open G-tuning from and 40 years on he still won't give credit to the guy who introduced him oh it. Oh, my God. You know? That's kinda of messed up, isn't it? I mean that that's life and you know we all get damaged on our journey through this you know, this crazy experience we call life and uh and that says it all but you know, no expectations. It's it's so beautiful and that's Brian mm-hmm. and, Absolutely uh, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know yeah. it's another hit. It's another income stream for Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Bless them, talented guys. But, you know, Brian Jones' estate gets very, very little money. And, um, yeah. you know, he's, without him, you know, those songs wouldn't really have happened. And, you know, he he formed the band. He chose the members. It wasn't Mick and Keith. You know, he chose the members. When they got Dictator to play bass, who's an old, who, who's an old mate of Mick and Keith, it was Brian who said, look, you want to switch from guitar to bass he chose the members he he wow. gave them their sound he gave them their name you know so right.
4: Right.
2: however messed up the whole thing is he he really made a difference incredible
1: well wow. you know incredible. um I wanted to i i mean he did definitely make a difference you know I wanted to go back to something that I read in the book that really stuck with me about the time um and i know this isn't about the music but the time that he walked into the studio dressed as the archbishop of canterbury so
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was that was pretty funny and you know i mean and the fact he checked himself into a hospital he knew he had issues but um,
2: <laughs> issues. You know. Issues. That's just great because <laughs> issues is just so. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that was the I least bit. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah. <laughs>
1: but that Archbishop of Canterbury was really funny. I have to say, that was a very funny story. Where he yeah. walked in and. Yeah.
2: <laughs> God. And I can't um, remember what year that was when when that happened. But but I think that was 67. And, okay. um, you know, he was a man who the um, establishment was trying to kind of break. And yet, in a way, he didn't care. It was kind of like, to one extent, he felt paranoid. He was trying to escape from everything. In another sense, he was just, he was like this walking, talking challenge to the establishment. Mm-hmm. You know, come and get me. Because, you know, he <laughs> he really didn't care. He would dress... Outrageously, he was the first to go out in caftans, or then he might wear some sort of super hit mod mod suit. You know, he really didn't care, mm-hmm. and um, you know that kind of bravery is is rare. You know, I, I, he he was conflicted because in another sense he was, you know, he, he he was paranoid that people were out to get him, but he was. Very brave. You know, when he was on stage, he was very aggressive. In the early days, mm-hmm. people would talk about how he'd just get right in your face and sort of stare at you, you know, and stare at you in a way that Mick didn't really manage for another another year or two. So that, so that whole kind of um, in-your-face element of punk, Brian was really one of the first people to do it. You know, I'm sure that maybe happened in in the U S with kind of some of the early blues performers, you know, who played guitar behind their heads and were kind of completely outrageous. But Brian was just, would have this evil leer and he, you know, I remember Tony Basil saying how they played the, the Tammy show, how he kind of went right up to the audience and suddenly turned his back on them. And she said, that was outrageous. Nobody ever did that before. So there's mm. this real edge to him. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's something that's still there in in rock and roll even now. I mean, I do remember the fellow who 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 used to book acts into the marquee. He he described Brian as the evil genius of the Stone. Oh, and that's, that's a, funny. Even before even before Andrew Oldham came on the scene, Brian was the one who just mm-hmm. knew that if you were kind of snotty and you stared people down, you didn't care, and you just you know gave two fingers to the establishment. He knew there's a kind of Dark magic to that, and he's a, he was the one who came up with it, no doubt. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, this book is, uh, you know, it just talks about the music and just a lot of just incidences and different situations. The pictures really add a lot to it, like I said. Um, Spence, did you have any other questions? I know that you have to go somewhere at six o'clock. Um, uh, there's
4: one thing I wanted to ask Paul, uh, the, he was, did he beat Jack Bruce?
2: Yes, he did. Yeah. Jack Bruce actually played some, um, shows with the stones early on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, Jack and uh, Ginger Baker used to mess about, um, yeah, because they were playing, I guess with Alexis corner. and. um, so Jack and Ginger were the rhythm session for a couple of the Stone's shows. But it was Ginger Baker said to me that they didn't really like Mick Jagger. They just thought he was, wasn't really very good. <laughs> but they, wow. they really rated Brian.
5: Um, wow. uh, I
2: remember Ginger Baker, uh, Ginger telling me how um, they used to like messing with Mick, just changing the beat a bit so that Mick mm-hmm. didn't know whether to come in. And Brian was absolutely loyal to Mick, so he'd go up and count Mick in, so he came in on the right beat. So, yeah, Jack did know him and uh, didn't necessarily like Mick very much, but he did, he and and Ginger really rated Brian. I mean, that's the thing, the the real music heads... Actually, after I'd done the book, I suddenly remembered, too late, it's it's kind of one of those things, because it was out of context, but I suddenly remembered... um, time I'd interviewed Dr. John and um, he and I really got on well because I love all that New Orleans stuff and I, and I was yeah. new and had tracked down a lot of the people that he really liked and I can really remember him saying to me spontaneously hey you know what cat I could really play? Brian Jones
3: and you think wow. about
2: Dr. John think about all the people he hung with yeah, in New Orleans great. really really sophisticated musicians <laughs> that's
4: incredible
2: and the one English guy mm-hmm. he told me about was Brian Jones because he just had something, he could tap right into it really early on before those white American guys had really sussed it out. Brian had mm. done it, you know. So he was, he was the first one. And you know what they say yeah. about pioneers? They're the ones get all the arrows.
4: <laughs> you're right. You're so right.
1: You know, I I've wanted to uh, say to you um, about this amazing story in this book. It's really, this book is just something that if you really want to know about Brian, uh, and I know there's other projects you're working on, uh, and I know that there's some things that we can't talk about right now, but I want everyone to know that there's so much more on, on coming out on this. So this will be just the beginning, I guess. Right, Paul? <laughs>
2: well, um, I'm sorry if you can hear all the explosions in the background. I'm in Greenwich in London and there's some fireworks going on. I don't know what's going on. It must be some oh, wow. uh, <laughs> ceremony on the Thames. But, uh, uh, let's hope but yeah, I've got a new, um, I've okay. got a, you know, my last book was on David Bowie and there's um, a, a new version of that out right now. And um, mm-hmm. And actually, this week, I became a rock and roll doctor. So, uh, oh, I, you're um, kidding. I did it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm now a doctor. I did, um,
4: hey, congratulations.
2: A, a Thesis based on, you know, I was given wow. a, a PhD based Excellent. on my book that happened on, on Wednesday. So oh, congratulations. A, probably, congratulations. I can tell you cause I'm not in the UK. If I was in the UK it would sound a bit kind of, um, uh, conceited if I told anybody, but cause this is just, you know, America, we're okay. And so, yeah, I just, I, um, oh, yeah, I just got a PhD based on my work on on Bowie oh, and so Evie awesome. and Brian and and I feel very lucky to have written about those people and to Definitely. of all those people, you know, I probably I think I've done a total of seven hundred interviews on on those musicians.
4: <sighs> wow, my book. that's heavy.
2: So you know, I I feel lucky to be where I am and to you know, I I, I want to get all these stories now while we while yeah. we can and. You know, and, you, yeah, of course, there's other great writers who are doing the same thing, but to me, this stuff's important. You know, I think
3: yep. the
2: influence of the Stones and of the the first blues musicians and people like Bowie and Iggy it will still be important, you know, 30, yeah. 40, 50 years. The, hey, by the so way,
4: Paul, there's a lot of Iggy movies out now. I mean, there's like a lot of Iggy mm-hmm. stuff going on. And And the thing I wanted to tell you is it's so amazing to me and, and Holly, I'm sure, agrees on this, that all this time, no one did a book on Brian Jones up to this day except you. To have that vision and to do it. That's you know, awesome. it's so important
1: for people. Yeah, absolutely. People need to know the real deal and the real story. Yeah. And, uh, a, you know, I wanted to say the book is, is amazing. If you really, really want to read a great book, and, I mean, just like some very intimate stories and uh some of them are very sad, but some of them are so enlightening. But it's a good
2: story, isn't it? You know, it's like when it's people an would lay story. it on the line, and it, it's a good yarn. It's sad, but, you know, maybe it's the awesome. great stories are always sad. But that's what his no, life was like. No,
1: it's not bad. Yeah, that's what
4: his life it's was like, good. right, Hal? I mean, that's what his life was like. It's
1: bittersweet in a way. Yeah, it tells the real, the real deal. Yeah, like, in other real words, really, it gives you the insight of someone's psyche, you know, and you now being a doctor, you can understand, you know, and reading, and now reading, reading, reading what you wrote and about all the different things he went through. I can't believe how many hospitals and and and, and things he's gone through, and he tried. I think he really, really, genuinely tried. But I thought it was funny where they said. He can't just be calling my calling the doctor up at nine a m in the morning and,
4: and, and I'm not
1: one of his fans I'm here to treat him but um uh, yeah no i mean it's 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 a great it's a great book so um, paul if anyone wanted to um get the book, they can get the book online and then if uh anyone wants to listen to the show and miss the beginning of it, it is available afterwards on iTunes. And also on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio under the Indie Cafe on demand as a download. And uh, I I don't know did we miss anything here that we wanted to cover, Spencer? Because I know that you had somewhere to be.
4: Oh no, it's okay. I think we've got uh, much. uh, Of course, the book has many more stories as we well know, but we can't get into right now. But but (laughs) I totally agree with Holly. The book is extremely. What I like about the, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, I know Holly agrees on it, it's the honesty of the book that reeks in the book. And that's very that's important. The part, not a, yeah. Right? It's not like a trashy book. With no. A lot of writers write. This is an it's honest real. book with facts, right? It's a honesty. real book. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I tried to do I mean, everything from kind of primary interviews to not have any of the gossip. And then yeah. you know, with Brian,
3: idea, I had a right? kind
2: of very. Yeah, I didn't want to make him out to be any kind of saint, and then yeah. I didn't want the cliche of him just being a rock and roll casualty. Because I think, you know, he he wasn't. There was this amazing duality to him, and I didn't want to have the cliche of just Mick and and Keith being the bad guys. You know, because sometimes he was his own worst enemy. So I guess it's like real life. Yeah, it's complicated. You know, it's like. There's no saints, there's no sinners, we're all a mixture of both. And yet, in a way, you know, there's a lot of sadness there, there's a lot of him being mean to other people, other mm. people being mean to him, and yet, at the end of it all, oh, it absolutely. made this amazing music.
3: Yeah, so however
2: sad or, inspi- you know, or, or, or whatever it is, you know, it's really exciting story, and it tells us about the music, and you know what? If it hadn't been messed up like that, the would- the music wouldn't have been as good, so...
5: I just yeah. think we get one oh, no. shot at life. Mm-hmm.
2: You mean I don't think you'd have had any regrets and I think it's just how it is. You've got to go out there, you've got to give it your all. And he did, he laid it on the line and he left some great yeah. music behind. And that's exactly. we can all oh, really absolutely. take there's something precious about that.
1: Yeah, and you know what? Um, I know Spencer, you all agree with me on this one. Um and sure. I know you will too, Paul. The music when Brian was in the group and there and with us here in the now was so much, it just has such a more real feel to it. Um, I like the music today. I really do. I love the Stones. Everybody knows I love the Stones. But it just its not it as rich, I don't think, or eclectic. Is that the it's right word to use yeah. to explain that?
2: Yeah, it's well, a different sound to it. Well, they've got their riff. They're kind of worked out to do it, and it's just different variations of the of the mm-hmm. same thing, you know, so they have been, they'll still do good stuff, but they, you know, they are coasting, and I, you know, uh, the blues album, you know, was a bit better, because it was, there was some great stuff on that last blues album, it mm-hmm. wasn't all great, but there was I some great stuff on, on it, cause it was, yeah. because it was, because it was small scale, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, but they were in the comfort zone, and the best music ain't made when you're in your comfort zone. The best music is made when you're just at the at the edge of what you can do. You know, so they've mm-hmm.
5: done
2: good stuff, but the, the, and and they went on. and made a couple of good albums after he died, but he gave them that kind of that dark magic, and they've not really escaped the kind of the the, the, the magical thrall of all the. Or the uh, uh Brian Jones he's he, he, I agree he's still there you yeah. know, the, the, and, only, um, the
4: only only thing i've ever seen forever, really. you know Paul the only thing i've ever seen that is really true blues that i could say knocked me out since is the uh rec- it's a documentary on the rolling stones at a blues club and i think uh Chuck Berry's in a session with them at a blues club that is an amazing documentary but that uh, other than that uh, I, I don't see, because Brian Jones, like I said, relating to the Led Zeppelin experimentation with instruments, they haven't done that since then with experimentation. He was the guy.
1: Nah, you no, know? no. Nah. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, Brian was I, the, also the mystic in the group, too. Yeah, really yeah true. that's true. He really was the mystic. Yeah. He had a lot of a lot yeah. of amazing insight, you know. Well, I, I, we both want to thank you so much, Paul, for... This amazing book, bringing it to the masses and um, being here You're today. You're really welcome.
2: Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah, take care, man. Rock and, and roll.
4: Rock and roll. And carried
1: congratulations, on. Congratulations. Yeah, congrats, Doc. Rock and roll, doctor. Rock and roll,
4: doctor, Paul. <laughs> he
1: is. And,
4: you know, <laughs> Thank you. Hey, hey, it would love good.
2: Thank you so much. <laughs> <We laughs> so. Thanks, love. Great to the two of you. And yeah, I hope we get to. Yeah, maybe chat again in the future. Yeah, Look
1: after love yourself, to have really Definitely,
4: definitely. We'll You'll bring it back next gig.
1: Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Want to talk about Mojo more, and um, yeah, yeah, also definitely. about about Bowie and, um, and Iggy Pop and stuff like that. So when definitely. we have more time, because I know you're in London, we're going to end our show with Ruby Tuesday. And again, guys, it's Friday. Please don't drink and drive, and um, have a safe weekend wherever you are. And um, We'll be back again next Friday, and uh, thank you again so much, Paul, for being here. And Spence, have a safe night wherever you're off. You too, to.
4: dear. You too, and you too, Paul. Right. both. Both of
2: you. Yep. Hey, thanks, guys. Have a great evening. Love you too, to you. Okay, Rock roll. Guys. Bye. Thank you so Bye. much.
1: Here you guys go. <laughs> she <missing>. I know. <laughs> great that fish. was oh, great, green,
0: Holly.
1: That was great, Holly. Loved it.
3: Yep. I love it. Have a good
4: day. Have paper is Take care, honey. Take care. Awesome.
0: While the sun is bright, or in the darkest night, no one knows. She comes and goes.